Well, hi, guys. Um, my name is Lauren Stone, and um, I'm a member of the teaching team here. Um, most of you guys um, I've seen before. But um, I'm excited to be here today. If you've been here for a while, you know that for the entire year of 2023, we have been in a series called Come With Me. And we've been looking at this, and we're finishing up this series by looking at the book of Mark. Um, and really, our, my heart today is that we would just look at Jesus, that we would get to know Jesus and the book of Mark more intimately, more fully, that we would understand who he is in a new way. Um, when we talk about come with me, really the heart of that is we're not talking about come with shine. We're not talking about come with some religious system, not come with Pastor Dan, certainly not come with Lauren Stone. Um, it's come with Jesus. And if we're going to follow him, really the best way for us to learn how to follow him is just to look at him, just to get to know him. So that's what we're going to do, hopefully, today in the book of Mark. Um, in the book of Mark, Jesus is portrayed as a counter-cultural um, servant king. Everything that he does is turning culture and religion on its head. Everything. He's counter-cultural in everything that he does. Um, he is serving people. And we'll see in the first four chapters of Mark today how he is consistently always just present with people. There is chaos all around him all the time. People pushing through the crowds just to touch him so that they can be healed. Literally demonized people falling on the ground in front of him everywhere he goes going, oh my gosh, you're the son of God. What are we going to do? And, and it's like no matter where he's going, there's just chaos and insanity around him. There's fanfare everywhere. And yet Jesus is present and he's there to meet people. He sees people in the crowd that no one else would see in the midst of the chaos. He is there to serve and to redeem and to teach people about the heart of the Father. Um, so the book of Mark, just it portrays Jesus as this countercultural servant king. If there is a theme verse for the book of Mark, it is in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And it says this, I can find it. It says, for even the son of man, he's talking to his disciples and he says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, about 11 times in the book of Mark, he will refer to himself as the son of man. And he does this throughout all of the gospels, but we're just looking at Mark right now. So, um, so the son of man, and this is kind of like a weird phrase. It is this idea that he's, he's one of us, he's human, but it actually is a direct quote from Daniel chapter seven. And I wanna read it to you. Um, in Daniel chapter seven, Daniel has had a dream. And in this dream, he's seen all of these visions. And eventually someone will come and explain to him what the visions mean. But what he has seen is four kingdoms or empires that would rule over the face of the earth and specifically over the people of Israel. So from this time, we know now, looking back at the prophecies and the ways that the times are lined out, that these kingdoms represent the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And just before the verses that we're going to read in Daniel 7, it talks about one specific ruler who would set himself up in the temple 
in Jerusalem and who would make an end to sacrifices and who would do all these things. And that was, um, the timing actually works out remarkably uh, when you look at historically Antiochus III, um, who was uh, a Roman uh, ruler. And, um, and so this is all happening. And then at the end of those four things that happen in this dream, Daniel says this in Daniel 7, verse 13. He says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All of peoples and all nations and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion was not like these other kingdoms. Um, His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that can never be destroyed. Jesus refers to himself throughout his ministry with his title, Son of Man. And one thing that's interesting is that, you know, there's like 23,000 verses, something like that in the Old Testament. About 270 of them are written in Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus would have been speaking in Galilee as he was traveling around and teaching. This is one of those verses, one of those 200 some verses in the Old Testament that is written in Aramaic. So when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he's not translating He's not pulling a Hebrew word from, from, you know, some other thing. He's not actually speaking in the Greek that we see written in the Bible. Jesus would have been directly quoting from the book of Daniel. He would have used the same language that is in this one prophecy in the book of Daniel, the son of man. And the religious leaders at that time would have been familiar, many of them having memorized and studied the books of the prophets Jesus, living in Galilee, spoke a Galilean dialect of Aramaic. This was his language. This is the only messianic prophecy in the Old Testament about um, the Messiah that's written in Aramaic. And so this is a word that Jesus uses to describe himself. I think that's fascinating. I think he was speaking their language. I think he was saying, I, you know exactly what I'm saying. That's who I am. And it's, it's really interesting to me, too, because um, Mark starts off his gospel with really a defense of Jesus as Messiah, right? A prophetic case for Jesus being Messiah. So um, Mark taught us last week, he said, the book of Mark starts with, um, he says, uh, there was, I will send my messenger ahead of you, uh, the voice of one calling in the wilderness. He quotes Isaiah. He says, look, John the Baptist came. He was the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Jesus was baptized from him. You all know there was a voice from heaven that came and said, this is my son. He went and he was tempted. And then in um, chapter one, verse 14, the next verse he said, and then John was put in prison and Jesus came back to Galilee. So I think his point is, look, John's ministry is over. He prepared the way, he did his job, and now Jesus comes into Galilee. And the first thing that Mark tells us about Jesus is in Mark 1, chapter 15, he says, the time that Jesus went into the Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He said, the time has come, or the time has been fulfilled. It is the fullness of time. The kingdom of God is at hand Repent and believe the good news. I actually think that when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, he was referring back to this passage in Daniel 7. If you study the Old Testament, there is not a lot of, um, of times that this idea of the kingdom of God comes up. 
Um, but once again, Jesus is using the same language from this prophecy, and he is saying the kingdom of God has come. The time has been fulfilled. The Babylonian kingdom came and it's gone. The, the Persian kingdom came and it's gone. The Greek kingdom came and it's gone. The Roman kingdom came and Antiochus has been dethroned. He's so like it's in the fullness of time. Now it's time for this fifth kingdom. And the the scholars of the law would have been there looking for this fifth kingdom. If they understood the times, they're, they're expecting for there to be a kingdom who comes, a son of man, one like them who comes and has been given authority and power by the ancient of days to rule and to bring in a new kingdom. That's their expectation. But Jesus is going to really disappoint them um, because he does not bring the type of kingdom that they want, which we know, um, he is going to rule with authority in a completely different way than, than the teachers of the law, um, than other kings and kingdoms. This is a different type of kingdom. And he is a really, really different type of king. Um, he says, when he comes, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And we've talked about that word over the past couple of months, that repent means to change the way we think about everything. Jesus has come and he's preaching a completely, um, a new idea to these people. It's actually completely in agreement with all of these things that are in the Old Testament, but it doesn't match up with what they're expecting. Their understanding was dark and they didn't get it. And so, um, what we want to do for the rest of the time is just be like, okay, what did he preach? What did he do? One of the fascinating things about the book of Mark, and it's, it's not so much about what Jesus says. It's a whole lot about what Jesus does. And so we get to look at Jesus and be like, what does he do? What does he do? What does it look like to follow him if this is what he does? Right? And so my prayer for us today, um, and I'll just say it to the Lord, Lord Jesus, my prayer is that we would see you. Lord, I ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand um, and to submit to you. Lord, I ask that we would see and know and understand who you are in, in just a more real way. And I ask that you would enable us um, to do that, Father. And we worship you we praise you. We thank you because only you are able to do that. Um, so Jesus comes and immediately um, it says that he was walking beside the Sea of Galilee and he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net and he said, come and follow me. And then um, soon after that, he sees James um, and John, the sons of Zebedee, and he says, come and follow me. And then in the next chapter, we'll see that he sees Levi, the tax collector, and he says, come and follow me. One of the first things that Jesus does is he begins to call his disciples and he doesn't pick his disciples the way that the other rabbis and leaders and teachers of the law do. They pick the most reputable and the most presentable of disciples, but Jesus doesn't do that. He instead picks the people who have zero qualification. And so we have to ask ourselves, sorry, we have to ask ourselves, why does Jesus do the things he does? Why does he pick the people that no one else approves of? And there's so many reasons. We'll go through lots of those, but I think one of the reasons is because Jesus 
really doesn't play according to anyone else's rule book. He has all authority. And because he has all authority, he's not concerned with impressing anyone. He doesn't need to earn the favor of the crowd. He doesn't need to earn the favor of the religious leaders. He is there and he's seeing people. He's seeing individuals. And he's not impressed by status or wealth or charm. He sees people the way that the Father sees them. And so really my first thought when we're reading through this and saying, who is Jesus? What is he doing? How can we follow him? What would it look like for us to see the people in our lives? Not only the people that are useful to us, not only the people that we identify with or we're similar to, not only the people that have charm or charisma, um, what would it look like if as we go throughout the course of our day, we had eyes to see people the way that Jesus does and to value them? to really value them, to see the value that is inside of them, even if it doesn't look like value on the outside. Um, Jesus was really countercultural in that way. The next thing he does is he goes into a synagogue in um, Cap- Capernaum, and he begins to teach. And as he's teaching, the people are amazed at his teaching. And someone who is possessed with a demon in the audience uh, screams out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So like, and and then we'll see actually in chapter three. I think this is really funny. Um, In chapter three, verse 11, it says, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. He gave them strict orders not to tell people who he was. But this first guy, he says, be quiet, come out of him. And the demon leaves. Everywhere that Jesus went, he walked in authority over the powers of darkness. He wasn't intimidated by it. He wasn't thrown off by it. It didn't freak him out. He expected that the powers of darkness would be pretty freaked out by him. He knew that was happening. Jesus didn't use his authority to subjugate people. He used his authority to liberate people. He didn't use his authority to condemn. He used his authority to to elevate, to qualify, to speak identity and life into people everywhere that he went. And so the second thing I would say, what does it mean to follow Jesus, the one who has all authority? And... This one I've wrestled with this week and I've prayed so much about this week. Lord, what would it look like for me not to be intimidated at any level by darkness? I feel like I was kind of brought up in a Christian um, culture that was like, oh, that's very bad. Like the demonic, that's very bad. We need to be pure. So we're definitely not dealing with anything that's darkness. You know, that's very bad. It's kind of dangerous. Um, and, and Jesus didn't approach darkness that way. Jesus like went there. He went straight there and he walked in authority over it and he brought the kingdom of God with him everywhere that he went. 
And we more and more and more are living in a culture where witchcraft is commonplace, where our culture is um, freely embracing the reality of the spiritual world and toying with the reality of the spiritual world and darkness. We really are living in an interesting time in our own culture where we're seeing that happen. And we can run away and hide because we're not sure what's going on or we can fully engage knowing that the spirit of God that lives in us is the same spirit of God that dwelt in Christ Jesus when he walked on this earth and we have all authority and all power over the kingdom of darkness. We don't have to be intimidated. We can engage it with the truth of the gospel because he has come to liberate people who are oppressed and who are deceived. From there, he went on and um, it says they went to uh, the house of Simon and Andrew and Simon's mother-in-law was sick. So he healed the mother-in-law and she began waiting on them. And then apparently she was really popular because by the time night comes, the entire village knows and everyone is bringing sick people out into the streets being like, okay, heal this one. And so not people can't even fit into the house anymore, but it says Jesus healed all of their ailments and he cast out demons and he, he taught, taught to them. Jesus, everywhere he goes, is healing people. And this is fascinating because I think, personally, that I would be irritated by all of the chaos. But Jesus is never irritated. And um, chapter 1, near the end, in verse 40, it says, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. I don't, we don't know what Jesus was doing at this time. You know, he was probably doing something else. He was probably trying to teach he was probably trying to go somewhere. Maybe he was trying to eat a meal. He was having a conversation with someone. As a mother, I know, I mean, there's just pretty much never a time where I'm not doing something and someone has to interrupt me and beg me to do whatever it is that they want me to do. Right? And Jesus doesn't get irritated with this leper. Um, it says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. In verse 41, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Again, Jesus is being very, very countercultural because he should not have touched the man. Now Jesus is unclean, ceremonially unclean for like a long time. I don't even know what the rules were. Um, but he's now unclean and yet he doesn't care. He reaches out and he touches the man because he sees him and he loves him and he has compassion on him, and he heals him. It's countercultural too, because he is elevating someone who the culture says is unclean and dirty and probably deserves this because of his sin. And Jesus is restoring him. In the next passage, we see that um, Jesus is teaching, and there's such a crowd around him that the people can't even get their friend to Jesus to be healed. And so they dig a hole in the roof of the house and lower their friend down through the roof so that Jesus will heal him. And again, I'm thinking, Jesus is like, he's trying to do something here. He's preaching a message. He's like focused, maybe. I mean, I, I would try, Right? And he doesn't get irritated with the people in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of him doing what he's been called to do by the Father. He sees this young man who has been lowered down before him. And it actually says that he sees the faith of his friends. I think Jesus is thinking, these guys get it. It's about the one. And so he pauses 
And he looks at the kid and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. One of the ways that um, these people would have thought the kid is paralyzed because he sinned. This kid has probably been told his entire life, well, you know, you're, you're disqualified, you're, you're a sinner, you're unclean, that's why you're paralyzed. His whole life, that's what he's believed. So Jesus doesn't just say, you're healed. He says, you're forgiven. You're restored. You're seen. You're loved. That's the heart of Jesus, that he, every person that comes into his path, he sees them and he speaks to them. Um, <laughs> and, and he's so feisty because he knows at that point that the teachers of the law are thinking to themselves, who is this guy? He can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And so he starts responding to the thoughts that they're having in their mind he says, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier for me to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or get up, take your mountain walk, but so that you will know, this is I'm teaching, speaking to the teachers of the law, so that you will know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins on earth. I've said this to him. And then he says, take your mat, get up, go home. He's... In Mark, when we see Jesus refer to himself as the son of man, there's only two different times when he does it. One of them is when he's defending his authority to the religious leaders. Um, and the other is when he's describing how he will suffer. Just an interesting note in the book of Mark, that's when he uses this title, the son of man, because he's come to bring in the kingdom of God and the way that he's gonna do it is by serving and by suffering and by giving his life as a ransom for us. Um, so he is a healer. He teaches with authority um, from town to town. Um, he goes uh, into the synagogues. And then once the leper starts spreading um, information about him everywhere, he can't even go into the towns anymore because the crowds are so big around him that he can't even go into the towns. Now he just has to stay outside of town. Um, so he's teaching everywhere he goes. He is declaring that the kingdom of God is here um, and we see more of his teachings in other books, but here we just see what he's doing everywhere he goes. Um, his authority uh, doesn't subjugate, it liberates, and it empowers people. Um, everyone in the culture that is basically looked down on, Jesus like, comes to the rescue. He heals women, he heals the paralytic, he heals the leper, he calls the tax collector to follow him, he calls the blue-collar worker. He's like, all the people that the culture doesn't honor, Jesus sees and he honors them, he connects with them. And, um, and it bothers the Pharisees um, because they don't do that because they're better than that, you know. You know? And so um, after he calls Levi the tax collector in chapter 2, um, the Pharisees are, are kind of bickering and talking amongst themselves when, um, like, why is he eating with these sinners? He goes to Levi's house, the tax collector, and he eats with a lot of tax collectors and probably prostitutes and other types of sinners. Um, and on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He calls his disciples, and, and um, in chapter 3, it says that he appoints 12 of them, and he designates them as apostles, that they could be with him, and that he would send them out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. The other rabbis weren't doing that. The other rabbis weren't empowering 
and sharing their authority and their reputation with their followers. That was countercultural, but Jesus is different. Um, Jesus is provocative. <laughs> this is my, in, in being countercultural, um, here's the thing Jesus, have you ever had a friend that like just didn't know where the line was? You know? And you're like, I don't know if you're dumb or just kind of a jerk. Just not sure yet. I'm trying to figure you out, right? Um, or if you just really kind of like making people squirm just a little bit, like I'm not sure. Um, but it is actually entertaining um, to have a friend like that. Jesus was definitely that friend. There are multiple times in these passages where the disciples are like, Jesus. You know, and where the teachers of the law are like straight up mad because of the things that he's doing. He just like, it's like he doesn't know where the line is. Um, but I don't think Jesus was aloof. And I don't think he was just a jerk. And so I wrestled this week with what was he doing? Why was he always crossing the line? What is motivating him? And just really sitting with these different verses and being like, Jesus, who are you? Why do you do this? Because I want to be like him. Um, I really appreciate the line. Actually, it's really comforting for me. I like the things on this side of the line. The things on that side of the line are like, that's too much for me. But apparently I'm entertained when people cross the line because I married Justin Stone and he just like, he loves this side of the line. Um, and early on in our marriage, I was like, what, Justin? And, and now I'm like, it's okay, I did marry him. I did. Apparently, I want to be on that side of the line. I just don't have the boldness to do it myself. Um, that's okay. But I don't think Jesus was like us. I think, um, I honestly think that because Jesus knew who he was and knew his value and knew his purpose, he was undeterred by the lines. He literally, in his authority, just kind of rode above all of that. All of the cultural stuff that really was there to oppress people, to control them, to, sub to subjugate them to the religious authorities or the Roman authorities or the social status structure, whatever it was. He was above it. And his goal was not to blend into culture. It was to completely redefine culture. And so instead of staying on the right side of the line, he just disregards it completely. He just disregards it completely because he came to set people free from the things that were oppressing them and controlling them. Um, one of my favorite times that he does this is in chapter three. Um, <laughs> in chapter three, in, in the end of chapter two, he's been going through the cornfields and it's the Sabbath and they're just going through the cornfields and his, or fields, weeds, I don't know. And his disciples are kind of picking grain as they go and they're eating it. And of course the Pharisees are like, this is so, this isn't okay. They're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus says, 
The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And then it says another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill it? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. This is my favorite part. I'm going to tell you why. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. What? He just, because he healed the guy? Here's the thing. Jesus' authority, when he walks in this much authority, and yet he undermines their system, he's a huge threat. He's a huge threat. He doesn't have to do anything to them directly. The fact that he has authority over all of these things and he can heal and cast out demons and teach and people are drawn to him and he's undermining their system, they are challenged and they, they want him gone. They need to deal with it. Um, Jesus lived in this provocative way. And, and here's my thought. Here's my question. Um, are we countercultural? Jesus didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to attack the Pharisees for them to want to kill him. Do you know what I'm saying? All he did was just live according to a different value system. Because he didn't live according to their value system, they hated him. And this is like a thing that happens in culture, Right? Can you guys think of a time where we just, we just don't live according to the value system of the world and all of a sudden they hate us for it? That's still a thing. My question is, are we countercultural in the same way that Jesus was countercultural? Are we coming into our social interactions with, with anyone at work, anywhere that we go? Are we engaging in those interactions to win people's favor to gain value from them, are we coming into those situations with a heart that says, I'm here to offer freedom and love and hope? And I don't really care if you want that or not. I'm just, I'm just here to love you. Jesus is constantly serving people and he's constantly challenging um, the culture around him. Um, and... Mark chapter uh, 2, verse 21. The Pharisees have questioned him again about why he's not following all of their rules. And he says this. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an, on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away um, from the old, making it tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Um, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Anyway, it's a picture, but what he's saying is, look, the way that I'm doing things is not going to fit your system. It's just not. It's not going to fit your system. There's a new way. And so if we want to understand who Jesus is, we have to look at him and we have to understand this new way. And a lot of times, um, <laughs> like Jesus invented deconstructing your faith, you know? 
He was the, he's the OG. He's the one that deconstructed the entire system and said, no, this is, this is what's real. This is what's pure. This is the heart of the father. This is what I want to bring you back to. And so I know all of us will deconstruct in different ways at different times, but really at the end of the day, Jesus, he's the one we're following, right? And, and he's the one that is motivated by the father's love for people, no matter what. Um, his kingdom does not fit their paradigm. Um, he elevates people who the religious system disqualifies. Um, and finally, he doesn't seek fame. He seeks true followers. Everywhere that Jesus goes, you know, the demons are always like falling on the ground, being like, oh my gosh, you're the son of God. And, uh, and he always silences them. He heals people and he says, don't tell anyone. Um, large crowds are gathering and, uh, and he leaves. There's one time where he's at Simon's house and he goes away in the morning to spend time with the father. And he's gone so long that all the disciples come and they're looking for him and they're like, Jesus, Jesus, you crossed the line. These people want you to teach them now. Like the crowds have gathered. Where have you been? And he's like, nope, I'm doing exactly what I need to do. In fact, we're not going back there. We're actually just going to move on to the next town. That's what we're going to do. We're not going to go to where the crowds are. We're not seeking fame. We're actually going to go to the next town because that's what my father has asked me to do. That's why I came. He's never seeking fame. And in chapter four, he tells a few parables about the kingdom of God. Um, Jesus realizes that in all of this excitement and all of this fanfare, he doesn't want to be just a circus attraction. No matter what, there will always be people who are drawn to the excitement, but who aren't actually interested in following and obeying and knowing Jesus. And so in chapter four, um, he's teaching and he has his disciples um, get a boat and push out a little bit from the water because the crowds are so intense pressing in on him that he can't actually teach. And so he sits in the boat and he teaches um, from the water and he tells them this parable. He says, listen, this is familiar. Listen, a farmer went out and he sowed seed and some of the seed fell on the path and the birds came and ate it. And some of the seed fell on the rocks and it might sprout up a little bit, but the sun will scorch it and it won't survive. Um, some of the seed fell among the weeds and it'll grow up, but it won't bear fruit because the weeds will compete with it for the nutrients and they'll choke it out. Um, and then some of the seed will fall on good soil and it will bear fruit um, 30, 60, 100 times while well was sown. And his disciples, in fact, everywhere where he goes, he's teaching in parables. And his disciples are like, why are you doing this? Why do you keep just telling stories? What does it mean? And Jesus says, look, to you, because you follow me, because you draw near, everything is explained. I'll explain it to you. But he says in um, chapter 4, verses around like 12, um, he says, but for the others... There's this prophecy in Isaiah that they will be ever seeing and never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. He says a lot of people here are never going to understand. A lot of people are never going to draw near. A lot of people are never going to obey. They're just here for the fanfare. 
in a circus attraction. And as soon as something is more interesting, that's where they're going to go. But he says, but this is what the parable means. So interesting because Jesus, I, I honestly believe that he is merciful. I think that one of the reasons that he's always teaching in parables is because we're accountable for what we know. And so for those who were never going to listen, never going to draw near, never going to obey, he doesn't force them to follow him. He doesn't say, look, I'm the son of God. You should obey me or you're going to have problems. He doesn't force them to love him. He understands like human nature. If any of you guys have raised teenagers, you're probably a little familiar with human nature. Human nature is if you tell me I have to, I won't. Or I will do it bitterly <laughs> and, and I'll throw a big fit about it. And so he understands that nature in human beings and he's, he's kind. And so for those who are never gonna draw near, he tells stories and they're entertained. And he doesn't demand, um, we just talked about love and house churches, he doesn't demand his own way. He doesn't demand attention. Instead, he just meets people where they're at. Um, and so he tells his disciples, look, this is what the parable means. Sometimes the word of God is going to be spoken, and like the seed along the path that the birds come and steal, the enemy just steals it right away. They, just, they never understand it. They never get it. For others, the seed is going to fall on the rocky soil. Um, it, it's for those people who they hear it, and immediately they're like, oh, this is awesome. I love it. And then because there's no root, as soon as something is more interesting or life gets hard, they just move on. And then for some, there's going to be a seed that finds soil, and it's, it's not bad soil. It's going to grow up, actually, but it's not going to be fruitful because the, the weeds are going to choke it down, and, and those weeds represent um, the distractions and the cares of this world. Sometimes we're going to hear the truth, and we're going to actually grow up a little bit. We might, we might not bear fruit because we're just distracted. And then he says sometimes it's going to find good soil, and um, when the seed finds good soil, he tells a couple of other parables. He says, for that, in that situation, the seed of the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed that you can plant, but it grows into the biggest bush in the entire garden. Or in chapter 4, verse 26, he tells the story of a farmer who sows seed, and then night and day he goes to bed, and he wakes up, and the seed just grows and sprouts, and he doesn't even know how it happens or why it's happening. He, he doesn't understand the process, but it keeps happening until it's time for harvest. And so he's like, for those who are good soil, for those who will receive the word of God, the kingdom of God will bear so much fruit without you even having to try. All you have to do is to receive it. And then, um, let's see, in verse, um, chapter 4, verse 23, um, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear. He continued, With the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. With the measure you use it, it's, it's another picture that he's using. The measure that he's talking about would have been like an actual measure, like a, a weight. Um, so maybe if you came to get seed to sow, it would be sold to you in a measure. So maybe, I mean, our measures are like a cup 
or a gallon or a barrel. <laughs> um, but he's saying to the measure that you use it, you will receive more. It's not to the measure that you hear it. It's not to the measure that you're entertained by it. It's not to the measure that you agree with it. It's to the measure that you obey the truth about the kingdom of God and about who Jesus is. That's the measure to which you will receive more. And he goes on, he says, whoever has will be given more, but whoever does not have, even what he does have, will be taken away from him. And he's talking about what we do with truth. And so today our truth is just, who is Jesus? And I encourage you guys over the next week to go and to look at these passages, to read through these stories of who Jesus is and to wrestle with them. Read chapters one through four and then five and six that, that we'll talk about next week and, and sit with Jesus and say, who are you? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Because the followers are those who draw near to understand. They're those who draw near and then they obey. So some of the things that we've seen about Jesus in these passages, we've seen that he is not intimidated by evil. We've seen that he heals the sick. Everywhere he goes, he's healing people. He's having compassion on people. He's surrounded by chaos and yet he is present with the individual that's in front of him. Jesus is, he has tons of fans, but he has a few followers. Um, he's not concerned with whether or not people agree with him. He's really not, he didn't get riled up about people's issues, you know, with him. Um, really hard to rile Jesus up, get him offended. It's really interesting. We don't see him getting offended a lot. The one time in this whole passage that we see him kind of getting irritated is because people are stubborn and they don't want him to heal a man who needs healing. That grieves him. That upsets him. It's just interesting. He doesn't get upset when he's inconvenienced. He gets upset when people aren't loved. Is that how we are? Hopefully. Um, I sometimes get upset when I'm inconvenienced. Working on it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so Jesus is aware that this fanfare is not the same thing as fruitfulness. He's kind. Um, he says, look, do you have ears to hear? And so today my question for you is, um, what are we doing with the truth about Jesus that we know? How can we take this truth about Jesus that we have been given and obey it? How can we take this, these stories about Jesus and draw near to understand more? Because a whole lot of seed doesn't bear fruit, right? But we want to be the people who bear fruit. We want to be the people who follow Jesus, who everywhere we go, the kingdom of God comes with us. What does it look like to be that type of person? What does it look like? How can you be more countercultural? How can you love people that you might not have even noticed yesterday? How can you serve people that no one else deems worthy of serving? How can you set people free from darkness or from oppression? 
All right. Father God, we, um, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that everywhere he went, he turned the religious system upside down. Lord, we ask you that you would make us this type of people that love well, that see people, that even though chaos is all around us in life, we're present with you, we're present with people. We're ready to do exactly what the Lord has for us. Lord, I ask that you would make us people who receive the word of God with joy and we don't get distracted and we don't move on too quickly, but instead we sit with you and we say, Lord, tell us what this means. Tell us what it looks like to obey, for this to bear fruit in our life. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was a king unlike any king before him and his authority didn't subjugate people. It set them free. Thank you for the way, Jesus, that you served us. That you picked the person who wasn't worthy and said, I'll make you worthy because I love you. Lord, help us to walk in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.